Welcome to Inviting Doom, a podcast about faith, bad theology, and stepping into ideas marked as dangerous for the soul. I'm Sarah, one of your hosts. And I'm Krista. We'd love you to join us as we unlearn old beliefs, navigate current issues, and explore the previously unexplored religious frameworks in our lives. So Chris and I are just following up on our last podcast on religious trauma, um, and we both felt that we owed it to everyone listening to sort of expand on some of the effects in our own lives to bring deeper awareness um, to the kind of damage that can be done by bad theology. There's often this quality side of evangelicalism that is about support and connection and kind of my partner was joking about it being the A side that's really immediately apparent and and appealing. But the B side is a pile of stuff that never really gets aired. And often people grapple with a lot of this on their own and they blame themselves or the world without realizing some of it is coming from the harmful ideas within the church. And a couple of things to recap from the articles that we discussed so far uh, would be useful because it's sort of a continuation of our last episodes on religious trauma syndrome. Uh, One is Emily Hedrick's piece about children learning to remove no from their vocabulary to whatever's being asked of them uh, when their environments don't feel safe for them to express, say things like hesitation or resistance, doubts. So in church culture, this can be a fear sort of that kids have or believers, a fear of separation. For kids, it would be a fear of separation maybe from their parents or the community, um, especially in light of eternity. If you can imagine as a child being worried about being separated from your your parents for eternity and, and fearing for your own soul, or as younger adults, and Krista has touched on before, about that fear of losing her community. It's, it's the thing that sustains you. And so learning to remove no from your vocabulary when it comes to things you might feel uncomfortable with or don't feel are right or sit with you in a weird way. You just learn to remove sort of any resistance to those things uh, in order to sort of stay safe and stay accepted within the community. So part of that is learning to ignore instincts that your body might have or suppress interests that you have or thoughts that come up or desires. Basically ignoring those things to ensure safety within the group. And sexuality can be a huge part of that suppression, uh, but there are a lot of other layers. Krista, you were going to talk about another uh, one of the other pieces that we talked about. Yeah, we also discussed uh, Dr. Rennell, Marlene Winnell's piece, and she's the one that coined the term religious trauma and skimmed over a long list of some of these side effects of religious trauma, like disembodiment, that can occur in many people's lives while in the church and when leaving the church. So as a reminder, religious trauma and trauma in general isn't an event in itself. It's how your body responds to the event and tries to cope with it. Religious trauma often comes from long-term exposure to harmful ideas that our nervous system reacts to and tries to adjust to. And our bodies learn to rewire themselves appropriately to the settings around them. These often affect people mentally, physically, and emotionally. It's a very difficult situation to leave a community that you are completely ingrained with 
Mm. And even if you leave on the best of terms, there would still be a lot of grief and negative effects in your life. But when you leave on terms that maybe stem from confusion or even traumatic events that cause you like a great shift in your life, you can imagine how these symptoms would even be magnified. The list of some of these impacts from one else piece that we went over before, I'm just going to list them again here, are terror and helplessness can set in, intrusive thoughts, negative emotional states, impaired social functioning, confusion, difficulty making decisions, trouble thinking of yourself, and lack of meaning or direction, undeveloped sense of self, anxiety, being in the world, panic attacks, fear of damnation, depression, thoughts of suicide, anger, bitterness, betrayal, guilt, grief, and loss, difficulty expressing your emotions, sleep and eating disorders, substance use, nightmares, perfectionism, discomfort with sexuality, negative body image, impulse control issues, difficulty enjoying pleasure or being present, rupture of family and social networks, loneliness, problems relating to society, personal relationship issues, struggling with identity and purpose on the outside. And before I kind of kick it back to you, I would just point out that this is a really long list and you can fall anywhere on the spectrum on here. Perhaps when you're listening to the list of these things, you might not think like, oh, well, I have some anxiety, but I'm not like clinically diagnosed with anxiety. So it's not that bad. And yet I would still flag some of those things to you. If you think that any of them ring even slightly true for you. Because there's a whole spectrum of, you know, from a little bit to a lot where you can fall. And I think that we disqualify some of the effects as if they shouldn't be a big deal. I should get over it. It's not what I think. And lean into your curiosity on some mm-hmm. of those. Yeah, because there's a lot of there's a lot of shame that we put on ourselves too of like not getting it right and it's not that bad or we should do better or why does it bother me? Get that, over it. Chris is right. Like explore those things, like that your body's giving you red flags for a reason. And sort of today I'll be focusing on my interactions with some of these points that Krista read and how I and why I kind of left a lot of that theology behind because of those things. There is a very specific Bible verse that helps me frame for my own life those religious trauma syndrome uh, symptoms. And it's that verse about he must become greater and I must become less. Or that in worship songs, it was like more of you, less of me. And it took me a while to figure this out, but the, the being less and that idea of he must become greater and I must become less or more of you, God, and less of me, that for me, I kind of placed coming from the theology of original sin. And the theology of original sin is like humans are born irreparably sinful, they're broken, they're flawed, like as is humans are doomed for hell, as is humans are unworthy and undeserving of God's love and good things, as is human efforts to be good and kind are, like Isaiah says, uh, said, like filthy rags before God. So even when we try to be good, it's not good enough. It's just like dirt before God, because he's so much better than we are. And as is humans are worthy of annihilation. And as is humans get in the way of God's will, like as we are, and as we exist in original sin, we are enemies of God and we're a hindrance to God's work. So the goal is in this framework is to have yourself removed 
refined or I guess replaced with God's sort of renovation ideals in your life. It's like having this sense, or I always had this sense of if God could gut me out and just redo everything in me, then I would be of use for his kingdom and I wouldn't fail and I would be a good witness and I wouldn't cause anyone to stumble or anyone to sin. And so for me that he must become greater and I must become less was really this sense of as I was as a human, I was insufficient and the outlook was bleak. Um, So it's sort of in this version of human's plight, this original sin version, the gospel or good news of what I learned confirms that humans are crap. But the good news is that God loves you, even though you're crap and wants to transform you. Um, And what I've realized over the years is that for this to actually be good news, this version of human's plight, this version of original sin requires that as very young people, as young Christians, we fully accept and internalize that we are inherently terrible and we require God's immediate intervention. Um, There is nothing really to love in ourselves, but at least we kind of are taught that we believe that God loves us. So we're crap, but the good news is God loves us even though we're crap. And so since we can't fathom why he would love such a dirty wayward being, uh, it kind of elevates him to this exceptionally great and amazing position. So that for God to love the world that he gave his only son, that is so mind-blowing and was so mind-blowing for me as a Christian because I fully accepted that I was worthless and I was undeserving of that love and undeserving of that kind of intervention and that kind of salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this theology, many Christians learn um, a deep shame about their bodies and their minds and their wants and desires as is. Humans are the reasons God had to die Um, sort of as Paul says, no one is good, not one. And so I think it's important here. um, Most people have heard of Brene Brown, but she's sort of studies shame. And she talks about shame being this deep, deep sense of I am bad, like at the core of my being, I am bad. And it's not being able to distinguish that from I did a bad thing. So I might be good, but for some reason, for certain pressures, for certain complex reasons, I I chose to do a bad thing and I made a mistake. And the theology that I grew up in was definitely uh, in my church and in camp and in circles like that. It was, I am bad. So there's this deep shame that sets in. I think for a lot of people, especially if I think of like, like older generations that got saved when there was the whole Jesus people movement in the seventies. And there was like a real like explosion of evangelicalism and whatnot there were a lot of people coming out of really bad situations in life who had been taught that they were bad. So there was like neglect, you know, abuse, violence, substance, substance addiction, all this kind of thing, especially through neglect for kids. They're taught they're not worthwhile. They're not valuable. They've been abandoned. They've been abused. So they learn those things. And then they go to church and they learn, yes, you are bad, <laughs> but God loves you and will make you better. And I feel like I don't want to discredit the fact that that is a step up. 
And that that there is a hope there that when you don't feel loved and when your message has been internalized that you are crap by whatever your circumstance is, either in the world or in another congregation or elsewhere, and you've internalized that shame message of you are bad, you are unworthy. And then all of a sudden you hear in this really like supportive, loving environment but God loves you and he died for you and he, he, he'll make it all better. That is good news. It is good news, except it doesn't fix the original wrong, which is this deep shame that you are inherently bad. And so I think there was a lot of ways in which people who came to church and people who then accepted that good news in within that framework, um, got healing and, and got some help, but didn't realize that they were literally teaching the same thing and passing on that same message of you are bad and you are worthy of hell and are an enemy of God apart from his great goodness towards you. And problematic with this, with that message of the you are bad message, at least for me and in what I've been thinking about is that your value and your worth is externalized. So say for you and I, Krista, um, we don't have any value in our own right. It's God that determines our worth. That's cool because God extends that to everyone and God is universally loving and God is eternal. So his approach in loving everyone stays the same. So that seems like a good deal because it'll never change. He'll always love us, but it's still an external approval. It's still externalized. Your worth in this original sin sort of complex that we're born depraved and born broken and born unworthy, it's still, we're still waiting for God to essentially give us those things back. So it's a deeply precarious way to exist as a young person that your success, value, worth, purpose, all of that's all dependent on God defining those things for you and restoring them to you. You kind of have to wait for him to bring those things back into your life, to fix the bad things, to give you purpose, to say that you're worthy. And because you don't have that in yourself and you're not worth it yourself. And so that all depends, like your success, your value, worth, your purpose, that all depends on your proximity to God. So if you've wandered too far away from God, you lose that external validation of God bringing that value to your life and fixing the problems and um, sort of restoring your life and restoring your value, which is the whole, you know, apart from the vine, we can't, you know, we can't flourish. So there, it's a deeply fearful entrenched system where you don't believe you have value just as yourself, um, that you will be okay without that external validation. Cause you're told you're not, you're not going to be okay, which is the point of our podcast called inviting doom, exploring those things where we were told you will invite doom into your life if you get too far away from God. And so, yeah, when you try to leave or, or remove yourself from some of those ideas, there's a lot of religious trauma symptoms that can come up because of that way that you require your purpose and validation and success and value all to be from God. And when you don't have God dumping that into your life, it, it's very difficult to navigate. Um, Krista, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I was just thinking how it's so interesting to me listening to your your journey there and kind of your thought process because I'm so familiar with so many of these scriptures and how they can be interpreted. And in my church, or the way I received them, it was so 
it was a completely different emphasis. And yet, even though I didn't have the same, I guess, emphasis that you experienced, I still felt harm <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in just a different way. And, mm-hmm. and so it, it's interesting to me, like, because I think other people might listen and think like, oh, yeah, I, I, I know those verses too. And I understand these concepts. And th- those things didn't wound me in the same way that she's describing or um, in the way that you've experienced them, except it, there'll be other unique aspects of a different interpretation and how it can be harmful. And I'm realizing that as you're talking about all of these little nuances that are true, and I can see the the reality of them. But it, it's funny to me just comparing it to my own journey and being like, wow, I never, I never carried it like that. But now I can also see how harmful that is. It's just very interesting to me. But um, I, I do want to know from you too, based on these things, what were like the tangible outcomes in your life that you felt stemmed from these, like the symptoms we discussed, you've had to deal with in your life, in your own personal walk that came from, you know, the the trauma of leaving the church or even behaving in this environment for so long. Yeah. And I think just one quick thing back to what you were saying, I do always think that's fascinating too, is that the text is there. Like you said, you yeah. heard those scriptures, you know, the text is there. And yet everyone is walking away with totally different things. And depending on their culture, depending on their family, depending on on their exposure to whatever books or pastors or whatever. And so it's fascinating to me because that's kind of the point is that people yeah. go to church and have very different versions through cherry picking <laughs> and not even a conscious yeah. cherry picking just through through your community's picking and the pastor's picking and like people have cherry picked experiences with yeah. God myself included and yet all of them are based on scripture and so yeah. so it's sort of fascinating it's like when you're like you and I've talked about perfectionism and stuff like that and when you're a diehard like when you're like I am getting this right <laughs> I will be the best Christian. Proof that I am hanging out with God a lot and we are good and therefore I am perfect. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Then then you actually start to take a lot of as many things as you possibly can, like that are humanly possible. You take them very seriously. And so because I took the salvation of my friends very seriously and took like who's messing around? Like if eternity is the reality. Who is yeah. going to mess around with that? Like, I don't understand. Like, who who's going to waste their time on like, oh, we should. Yes, but hell and death at the end. <laughs> it's pretty major. And so back to your, you know, your sort of question of like tangible outcomes. It's like mm-hmm. what I was just saying, because I was a diehard. <laughs> like I, yeah. I intended to submit fully to God. I intended to submit fully to the Bible, to align myself with those teachings, to read everything I could, the newest stuff on like how to be the best person in worship, how to be the best, you know, be the best at music, how to do whatever in a Christian way. Um, I fully believed that every verse in the Bible is true because that was what I was told. And so it's really difficult to not when you come across verses um, like what Paul writes about, about himself and his body. It's it's hard not to take them seriously because while these specific verses weren't preached all the time, his works were like Paul was constantly quoted. I prayed like Paul, who will rescue me from this body of death? 
Like I believed Paul when he said, nothing good lives in me, or there is no one righteous, not one. Um, I loved the prophets. I loved Isaiah. I loved Jeremiah. Um, I felt like they had a real sense of like justice. And I believed Jeremiah when he was like, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Like I believed that stuff about humans and about myself. Um, And it drove me towards God um, because I didn't want to get in the way and I didn't want to have sin in my life and I didn't want to harm others. It was often my sense of justice that made Mm -hmm. me to be the best that I could be. And so like, I frequently assessed my wants and goals, you know, like looking at God's kingdom, put his kingdom first. I promised God that I would at any point, you know, throw off anything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Um, Yeah. yeah, Making sure I didn't give footholds to the devil. Um, I used to set timers for myself. And this was based on a recommendation from a Bible college teacher that they were like, oh, to like train your mind towards thinking about God, you should set a timer on your watch every 10 minutes or 15 minutes as just a reminder to, oh, was I thinking about God or was my mind wandering? And so I literally used to set timers for myself on my watch at Bible college to like train my brain to be consciously always thinking about God in the backdrop. And there was this immense- That's insane. Yes, it is. It is. It totally is. (laughs) Right? But I was like, God was like my great love. And I was going to fill my life with God. And I had this immense pressure, probably obviously, (laughs) clearly from myself. Um, (laughs) But also like it was a Bible college professor who who suggested that. So I wasn't alone in my sort of- um, wanting to fill up my life with God. Right. And Mm -hmm. so there was this immense pressure to get it right. Like I had said before, because I was aware that non-Christian people were going to go to hell. They were, they had a higher chance of not being saved if I was a shitty Christian, (laughs) you know, and I think (laughs) I'd mentioned this on one of the podcasts before, but like, I used to have nightmares of my school being on fire, or I would walk down the hall and there would be students standing at the lockers, but when they would turn, it would be like skeletons like, cause they had all died. And so it was like, I mean, this is, you're a teenager, like what the actual, f-? but this was the pressure. If everything is in the Bible is true and there is a heaven and a hell and time is ticking, you're either going to take that seriously or you're not right. Yeah. So sort of the response, like I found that over time, obviously this kind of hit in my twenties and, and exacerbated but it's sort of my body responded to these teachings, I would say in two distinct ways. And the first one was like uh, this long process of disembodiment. And the second was on the list as well, this underdeveloped sense of self. And the first one, this process of disembodiment was where I learned to ignore and distrust my body, which is often, as you know, Krista referred to as the flesh, (laughs) quote unquote, the flesh. So how it felt in situations or how my emotions were or how it responded to life, I essentially learned to respond and act appropriately to what was expected of me or what I felt was expected of me as a Christian. So there was kind of an emotional rigidity there. And you and I have briefly touched on spiritual bypassing, but there's like these forced outcomes. So you have cancer, but you're supposed to be grateful or someone in your life has died and you're supposed to be, you might have a brief like grieving period, but you're not supposed to be angry about it. And you're not supposed to be bitter or grieving too long, like forcing an outcome to arrive at a certain place 
before you've even actually walked through all of the emotions, you're just supposed to like be the thing, be joyful, be grateful, be something before it's even like a natural state that you have come to yourself through your body's processes. I think the emotional stuntedness, so that's like sort of rigidity, but like there was a stuntedness in myself as well, where things like maybe key ones like like having too much stress or anxiety or anger they're moralized and they're called bad they're just simply not in your in your coloring box of colors that you're allowed to use in in any situations so it's about controlling emotions and not using certain emotions versus actually processing emotions and understanding where they come from and how they work and so Emotions, as you probably are more aware of than I am, Krista, just from your background and your study, but there are legitimate functions to emotions. So say in the pursuit of justice, there might be hatred, there might be rage, there might be anger in processes of grief, there might be like years and years and years of sadness, there could be depression, there could be all these things that are for reasons if we look in the history of humans, things that were necessary for like discontentedness were necessary mm-hmm. for expanding, were necessary for looking over the fence and going, mm, maybe I should try to get food from over there because I'm not content with what I have here. So there are all these things in us that have served meaningful functions for humans for a long time. And yet the stuntedness is just like, whole swathes of emotions are just like, those are bad. Don't be those things. Don't, don't like, you know, practice those things. Don't be frustrated. Don't be impatient. Don't be, you know, they're all moralized. And so you're shutting down parts of your body, like actual biological parts of your body (laughs) that are trying to process complex emotions by just your brain telling your body that's bad. That's bad. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's not bad. Don't feel those things. Don't do those things. And so for me, when I thought of my body, it was just like this thing that carried my soul around. It was like that. I don't know if you had that song. Um, My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Keep it tidy, clean. Anyway, it was a very functional thing. It was just like this shell that you were supposed to wash and make sure you brush your teeth and your hair. It was not a source of wisdom. It wasn't a source of like processing things or holding things. The body wasn't seen as a source of any kind of guidance or enjoyment. It was just carrying, you know, the soul around. And then on the underdeveloped sense of self part, it's very difficult to make decisions that are quote unquote right and good when you can't trust your body's feelings and signals and you can't trust the world. So how are you supposed to make a decision in your life in terms of direction when Satan masquerades as an angel of light and is super deceitful and the world is peddling in half truths and deceit and your fallen body and your mind are like born as in the original sin framework, natural enemies of God and sort of wayward and broken. How do you make decisions and trust to take a step forward And it's constantly, oh, just pray on God and just like ask him for the answers and he'll guide you and lead you. Like he didn't for me. (laughs) He didn't. Studying for me, um, jazz the first time around, not the last time when you and I met in school studying, but studying jazz in my 20s was a very difficult 
thing for me to navigate. And obviously I didn't navigate it successfully because I'm not a jazz singer. Um, (laughs) There was no, there was no clear path and there was no direction from God. And I think it's really easy to hear what God wants when the path is well trodden and a whole pile of people have done it before you, because you just look to those people and you go, well, they're all godly and they're all in church and active and look at their happy, healthy families. And this is how they did it. So this is what I do. So you're not actually hearing from God. You're hearing from this like path of well-trodden, you know, steps taken forward. And for me, I was just like, I am not really interested in ministry. I'm not interested in being a wife. I'm not interested in having children. I really want to sing secular jazz in the secular world. And there was basically no path for me. And I never got direction from God or peace about what to do. And I think that for me was a big start of that anxiety and that um, struggling to, uh, to figure out myself. And I would just add on that too. There was a lot of emphasis on idolatry just through, I mean, through songs, through whatever, but, you know, if you're reading in, in at all, any serious way in the new Testament, if you're reading any of the letters or you're reading, uh, anything of, well, Peter, uh, Paul, anybody, there's a huge thing on Christians keeping themselves from idols, dear Christian, keep yourself from idols. Um, and so I really worked really hard to keep anything that I really, really loved or was felt quite passionate about or felt like I could be quite passionate about it. I worked really hard to keep it at arm's length because I knew that to love God was to be obedient. And if I love Jesus, I would be obedient no matter what he asked me to do. But it's very hard to give up things and obey God if you too passionately love things and you're too enmeshed in things. So for me, the logical decision that I drew from that was don't be passionate and don't be too interested and don't be in love with worldly things too much because they're of no benefit to your soul. Like they'll possibly trap you and ensnare you, especially in the world and thinking of secular music industry and whatnot. And that way you will protect yourself from having a difficult time listening to Jesus and giving things up if he asks you to give them up. Um, Because there's also the emphasis on sacrifice and making sure you give up stuff for God because God will test you and you know that God will test you. And that the point of it all is like Jesus, you know, if it's possible, take this from me, God, but not my will, but yours. Like I will go unto death and sacrifice myself, even though I don't want to, even though this is going to be painful and awful, but I will get everything up for you, oh God, as Jesus did. Um, And so endangering that would be to get too invested in the world and to love things too much. And so from that, there's a deep sort of lack of agency that I felt in my life. And I wouldn't have articulated it like that back then. Cause I just felt like I was being a good Christian and I was doing the right things by waiting on God and waiting for direction and waiting for clarity and waiting for him to guide my life. But what I see now, just even in my own self and, and the feelings that I had, it was just a lack of agency. I was waiting all the time and worried about disobeying and worried about messing up his plans by making a wrong decision. And really like the system, the church system is set up to reward this kind of spirituality. It's a passive sort of non-control spirituality. Uh, Nowhere in evangelical circles did I ever hear someone saying to me, 
you know, I think you worry too much about God, uh, like what God wants you to do or, uh, Hey Sarah, you're fasting and praying too much to hear God's voice. Or like, I think you're putting too much weight on scriptures. You should probably hold God's word a little more loosely. Like, so the things that I, (laughs) right. Like the things that I was emulating where I was really intent on hearing God's voice and hearing his word and trying to fast and pray and really like give weight to scriptures, all of that was rewarded. Like all of that was like, oh, okay, now you're picked for leadership. And well, I mean, women aren't picked for leadership, but (laughs) 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 you were picked to like assist with the worship or whatever. Yeah. There, there wasn't, there's no, there's no um, points of like checkpoints where someone goes, Oh, hold on. Like you were saying in your church, you didn't feel that those certain specific things necessarily were emphasized, right? But if you had chosen yourself to emphasize those things, nobody would have pulled you aside and said, hey, uh, I think you're reading that scripture on the soul. You know, you're an enemy of God. I think you're taking that a bit too seriously. You're not really an enemy of God. No, like it was legit. It would have been legitimately upheld, right? Yeah. Um, and so I still have this sort of underdeveloped sense of self that I struggle with and a difficulty in discerning what makes me tick. I have a lot of feelings about like what I should do and analyzing situations of like, well, this is the thing I'm supposed to do, or this would be the best thing to do, or this would be the most effective thing to do. Really actually being honest and tapping into what I want or who I am or what is good for me. I have a real problem doing that. And a real trouble kind of like almost emotionally committing to the skills that I have. Cause it's like, Oh, well, it, they're not really important or this, this is just passing or maybe that'll get taken away from me. And so mm-hmm. sort of my trained brain kind of overrides the gut feelings that I have. And I, and I stress about making the correct choice. Like it is getting less, but I do. Can you just jump in maybe and talk about what the disembodiment and body struggles look like for you? If I go back to something that I had said before, um, which was my brain sort of telling my body not to feel certain emotions. That's really important because there are certain emotions, at least in how I perceived the theology to be, that certain emotions like anxiety or frustration or discontentedness or offense or worry, they're all sort of moralized into right or wrong. Um, and so there's a certain set of emotions that you're just simply not supposed to either feel feel, or if you do feel them, you're not supposed to feel them long-term. Um, and you're certainly not supposed to struggle with them. Um, and so what happens is that when you actually do have these emotions, you have very few tools to deal with them when they come up. And you also don't have many past experiences on how to navigate them properly. Cause most of your navigation, at least for me of, of emotions was avoiding them, <laughs> or mm-hmm. like not feeling them at all or 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 praying to god that he would take them away. So for me like the only tool i ever had really was simply just to pray to jesus more. Like uh if i was stressed, it's like oh lean on jesus more. You know, if i'm feeling uncertain about my future, don't worry about today, be like the flowers of the field, you know. Mm-hmm. You're tired, you know, rest in him. Those that wait on the lord will rise with you know wings as eagles. Um, If you're anxious, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. So in a nutshell, sort of following these instructions, these sort of how to, how to emotion, (laughs) following when faced with a very adult complex reality, 
my body and my brain had no real tools to address and deal with the issues that were causing anxiety um, and causing things like the eating disorder that I struggled with. And I think because of the way that you're supposed to feel and supposed to respond, it is so clearly outlined as a Christian that when those things don't align, you are the problem. So it sort of goes back to our bonding response that you and I had talked about. Mm-hmm. Where we're trained to assume that the issue is not with the structure and the beliefs that we're swimming in, but the way that we're swimming. And so you keep trying harder to produce the correct swimming speed, like trying to stay afloat. Are you breathing properly? And all that's supposed to um, help you be a better swimmer. And you're, but you've never questioned the reality um, of the structure you're swimming in or the quality of what you're swimming in. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 training where you automatically assume the fault is yours and that if you're struggling as a Christian and if you're struggling with things or feeling things in your body or things don't feel great or you're having quote unquote problems navigating stuff, you're the problem. You're just trained to assume that you are the problem. Um, And I think there's another thing too. I think you're also trained that difficulty, stress, and suffering is all part of God's plan. Like if you're going to follow Christ, you take up your cross. And that meant the bleeding and the long walk and the heavy burden. And, you know, I like I know, Mm -hmm. you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But we were told that there would be persecution and suffering and whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of in this thing of that Jesus is going to bring you out of that. And so I think not just feeling like the blame is on yourself if you're not navigating things well, but you're also then taught to hunker down (laughs) and really stick into it and really like stay with it to be seen as faithful. Because if you, when things get hard, if you kind of just peter off, it's like, well, you didn't weather the dark night of the soul and you didn't, Mm. you didn't really weather that season very well. And sort of, I was thinking about this today and I was just thinking that whole mentality is really geared towards people who are privileged enough to have the funds and the longevity and the, the sort of the health to weather mm-hmm. storms. Mm-hmm. I was going to, that's what I was going to say. What does it look like to actually weather those storms? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Because there are people that can't weather them or because of the structure like we're talking about what we're swimming in if the actual water is like made of I don't know like slime or something you'll never weather that storm like you'll drown right like you can't change that structure and you're just keeping trying to swim and be faithful and stay in it and the reality is is like it's actually the stuff that you're in that's causing the problem even today i think when i was scrolling through instagram there was like the um the irc the refugee nonprofit but they were talking about somalia and somalia's had nonstop food scarcity and famine this isn't a season like they're not going to be brought out of it entire lifespans of people have been in that slime and passed away in it and not mm-hmm. survived it so yeah, that sort of just hunker down and like wait it out kind of mentality. And then you're the faithful Christian who made it through. A lot of people don't make it through. Um, I think it's a position of privilege to kind of like hold that mentality and kind of shows you how much privilege there is often in the church spaces that we grew up in, where it is just seen as 
you just wait it out, <laughs> you know, because you can afford to. I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to watch the Shiny Happy People documentary yet, but the I haven't. No. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, it's it's definitely good, and it always disturbs me when you see them and you listen, and you're like, oh my gosh, like those are similar messages. Yes, super familiar. <laughs> yeah, it sounds far too familiar to me. <laughs> And one of the interviewees said um, just about the constant self-analysis self-analysis that she had gone through and checking for sin all the time. She said, you cannibalize your self-confidence with overanalyzing, am I doing it right versus looking at the system? And hmm. I thought, oh gosh, that's definitely, you know, sort of what I was doing in some ways was a self-cannibalization where obedience to God for me was so vital and maybe more emphasized than in other places. I don't know, but definitely in my head, it felt very, very emphasized and obedience to God is so vital that I, I essentially viewed myself as suspect and I was ready to reject parts of me, like my thoughts or my emotions or my desires or my needs or whatever if they might hinder my relationship with God. And so there was this immobilizing aspect where I felt I really couldn't move. Um, Mm. It was like this claustrophobic sense. And I think that's really when the anxiety started and when I started having anxiety attacks, because there were like these looming decisions as I was entering adulthood in the real world that I didn't feel like I could make. So if I were a good Christian, I would have to make these certain decisions and I wouldn't be allowed to make these certain decisions mm-hmm. or yeah. there wasn't a clear path forward. And then I didn't know what the godly Christian thing was to do. And so there were things that I felt like I had to make these decisions on that my my body was going, I, this doesn't feel right. This isn't good. But I'm like, yeah, yeah. But this is what I've been told to do. And the other things were like, there was no clear path. What are you going to do? And I was like, I don't, I, like, I don't know. And sort of on this, like if I touch on the eating disorder stuff, I had developed an eating disorder at the end of grade 11. It was sort of in full swing by the time of grade 12. And I came across this article. I should have sent it your way, but I knew you didn't really have time to read the whole thing. But I I, I copied and pasted a bit of it here. But it was an article printed in the British Journal of Clinical Psychology in 2017 called Psychological Need Satisfaction, Control, and Disordered Eating. And I'm just going to read out of it here where it starts. Um, The authors write, one framework that has recently gained popularity in describing the mechanisms behind adaptive and disordered forms of eating is self-determination theory or SDT. Central to SDT is the tenet that people have a set of basic psychological needs that are necessary for effective functioning, psychological health, growth, and integrity. In particular, this theory outlines three universally important needs, autonomy, competence, and relatedness. The need for autonomy reflects the need to experience a sense of volition and choice in one's activities. The need for competence involves the need to feel efficacious and capable of achieving desired outcomes. So according to SDT, when basic psychological needs are thwarted, People develop defenses and self-protective accommodations to cope with the associated psychological deficit. So disordered eating behaviors can be thought of as an instance of rigid behavior patterns that may serve to satisfy a frustrated need. Specifically, fixation on extremely stringent eating routines and rules provides people with a sense of structure, predictability, and security in their lives, and is thought to represent, in part, 
substitute satisfaction prompted by deficits in perceived competence and autonomy. And so I'll just read one more part here. It just says one possible mechanism at play in this relationship is perceived lack of control. That is thwarted needs for autonomy and competence may lead individuals to perceive life and themselves as out of control, which in turn may increase vulnerability to developed disordered eating behaviors in an attempt to reassert a sense of control. And so for me, just what I touched on there, it was very much a control thing for me where I was, like I said, trying to enter the big old world in grade 11 and 12 and thinking about what I was going to do and where I was going to go. And I knew I didn't have any control over it. Like I knew it wasn't my life. It was God's life. Mm -hmm. And yet I didn't have clear direction because a lot of the things that I felt and wanted didn't fit into the 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 normal path that most people were choosing which was mm-hmm. getting married and having kids and like where women often didn't have careers you know this is like of course the 80s and 90s so things might have changed now where more women are out in the workforce the sort of the messages that i had growing up was like that are i think consistent christian messages or at least evangelical messages is mm-hmm. you are you are not your own you were bought with a price like mm-hmm. God's will and purpose is everything. Your desires and will are secondary. Um, you don't lean on your own understanding. You lean on God's, you know, your ways are foolish. God's ways are better than yours, even when the outcomes don't make sense. So even when logically nothing is making sense as you're sort of walking through life, God's ways are higher than yours. Whatever you perceive about the situation is like incompetent right? Which goes back to that needing to feel competent. You're constantly undermining yourself. At least I was. And so there tends to be as well, what I struggled with in terms of this lack of agency and and competency um, was the misogynistic kind of environment. And for me, that really compounded the loss of control, not only just simply because um, a lot of the guys in the church were allowed to do things uh, that were exciting and fun and and sort of have more more autonomy about the decisions they were making in life. Mm-hmm. But sort of by God's design, women are submissive wives and mothers. They're not supposed to be leaders. They're not supposed to be scholars. They're not supposed to be thinkers or innovators. They're assistants, you know, like they they clean yeah. up organize and I mean every pot I can't think of a potluck that we had in the church basement on a Sunday night where the men got up and did all the cleaning and all the- <laughs> you know what I mean of course not no you have a weird <laughs> dynamic where as a young girl you're watching the women do all the like coordinating like they were the ones that coordinated all of the the a's to the m's bring the salads and then they're the ones that cook it all and then they like clean up everything so there there wasn't any sort of idea that they were leading anything they were just cleaning up afterwards Um, And they're not the spiritual head. So women are not expected or encouraged to make big decisions. They're not expected to assert themselves. They're not expected to challenge men or to be independent. They're not supposed to be that smart, like in a way that would challenge the, the authority of, say, the pastor or the leaders or the elders. And that's kind of framed as being set in stone because it's directly from God, like that hierarchy is from God. So it's a very claustrophobic feeling as a woman to be in that kind of culture 
and you do have all these skills and these other things that you're thinking about, well, I would love to write, or I would love to research, or I would love to do this, or I would love to. And all of them are saying, no, but God made women to not be those things. And Mm -hmm. so looking ahead from, you know, high school outward, I'm like, oh, I would love to be in the world and be an actor or a jazz singer or a A, B, C, D, or E. And none of that was like in in the framework I was handed. None of that was moral. You know what I mean? Like the wants that I have, the quote unquote desires of my heart, which by the way, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. (laughs) So, but like, the, but God gives you the desires of your heart, Sarah. Yeah, God gives me the <laughs> and deceitful, evil heart. Yeah, <laughs> that's not confusing at all. It's not confusing at all. <laughs> so, like, I didn't trust myself that any of those things that I wanted were um, legit. I just felt broken. Like, I felt like there was something wrong with me. Um, and then I was constantly the fawning thing of like, please, God, love me. Like, I just, I, I'll try to be better. I'll try to be good. I'll try to fit the form. I'll try to, you know. And so you kind of have this idea that not only has God made women as the helpmeets, mm-hmm. but also this weird relationship that the Bible sort of outlines to women in terms of their sexuality, which we discussed, but also like beauty, like you're supposed to be beautiful on the inside in your hearts with a lasting charm of a gentle spirit that is so precious to God in first Peter, which I memorized in Bible college, by the way, the entire book of first Peter (laughs) has not come in useful at all, except for that one instance, just there. Um, (laughs) But like, but you're supposed to be beautiful on the inside. So you're supposed to do all this work on the inside, but then on the outside in marriage books and in counseling and everything else that you're reading in sort of the the evangelical culture sphere is men are visual creatures and don't be too, you know, don't be too alluring. Don't be this. But also you have to be alluring because if you get married and you're not satisfying your husband and you're not pleasing, he's going to wander off to some other mm-hmm booby assistant (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean so there's insane position that women are put in where we're not supposed to be thinking about our word appearance and yet we're supposed to quote unquote keep a man and so that in itself the the misogyny of that of where you're not allowed to go as a woman a woman and what you're supposed to sort of encapsulate as a woman but it's between a rock and a hard place it it makes this impossible position of when you're thinking about your future, I just felt totally incompetent and trapped and had no mm-hmm. over my choices. Right. Yes. Um. And so, yeah, like I said, just that, that anxiety over not fitting the mold and there being something broken or wrong, it was really hard for me. And I think if I had wanted to be a mother or I'd wanted to like be a missionary, I feel like I would have like found a way in there and it would have been a little bit more, you know, easy to navigate. But because there was like basically nothing that I wanted, everything seemed so boring to me. Like I wanted dresses and drama and I wanted to like mm-hmm. go to Hollywood, walk a red carpet and like literally just for the clothes. Like I didn't even want people. Oh to- yeah, me too. I wanted the clothes and the makeup and totally. the photos and just, yeah. The glamour of it. I didn't, I didn't want mm-hmm. people to recognize me. I didn't want to be famous. I just literally wanted to be dressed up every day. And so there was all this stuff that I just did not want. And so there became this sort of with the anxiety over not fitting that mold and not having clarity, like in 
any point of my prayers and my fasting and my begging and my pleading at no point did God ever make clear for me what my next step was. I never had peace about what I should do next. I never understood what I should do next. And so I sort of was in this anxious mode of like not knowing how to proceed in a godly manner with the things that I wanted to do, or if I was just supposed to hack all of those wants off And so there was this shame spiral that really kicked in where I started to pray harder for healing of my eating disorder and and guidance, and yet no healing and no guidance ever came. And so as I was getting older and moving forward, it became more chaotic and I had a perceived like intensity of loss of control and direction. So with every year that you're praying and trying to submit to God's direction and God's Mm -hmm. um, will and there's nothing that you're getting back, then I had greater anxiety and greater a greater eating disorder intensity because of my perceived lack of competence and control. And then I had increased shame about being a bad Christian, which then increased my prayer time and praying harder and, and asking God for direction and help that never came that then mm-hmm. funneled into like trying to gain a sense of control through my eating disorder. And it was just like, it never, it never got better, like, like 20 years, but yeah, Do you, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts there. Yeah. I have so many Dive thoughts. In. I'll try to, I'll try to condense it. Um, cause I don't want to lose the momentum of where you're going, but you know, I was thinking about how you were talking about this just self analysis and how we try to force our emotions and even our positions and our wants and desires to fit into the correct mold of what's accepted. And on first glance, I think that at least my previous self would be like, well, what's wrong with striving for greatness? You know, like Mm -hmm. this is, it's great to, um, you know, reflect and think, okay, I shouldn't be angry at this person. They didn't mean it. I will, you know, change my perception and I will go to this more perfect self that is, you know, accepting and forgiving. And it could be with a slew of different things. And I definitely relate to just praying and seeking God so fervently to get um, clarity on what I was supposed to do with my life, for him to put my feet on his path, to not like miss the mark, things like that. And also feeling that kind of tension of not feeling like I had any direction. He wasn't answering me and I was doing everything I could. So like on first glance, I feel like, okay, well, what's the problem with striving for that kind of rightness that we initially were given and I think that the breakdown really comes in trying to force yourself to strive and want and feel the things that aren't actually authentic and you know like if God actually made you to be this person this Sarah you know then what what is the benefit of you denying who you are authentically, who he made you authentically to be, to be what, what like the church thinks you should be? Like it doesn't, it doesn't compute, you know, like, so we have like this dissonance between like, okay, well, God made me unique. God made, made me the way that I am. And yet the way that I am wants the things that I shouldn't want or wants or feels the things that I shouldn't feel it's not even just um, the church pressure. It's your own, your own idea of what is right and best and doing it for God. And even after I've left the church and you've left the church, I'm sure we both still kind of have that idea of what we think is best and right and perfect in the next steps of our life. 
Well, I think problematic is not, it's not necessarily just that it's the church that has these ideas. It's the fact that the the theological framing is that original sin thing that we can't trust ourselves because we're broken mm-hmm. and we're yes. fucked. And so you're never quite sure if your desires are correct. And I think that's where the problem and the conundrum lies is when you start feeling like you want to do things that are different from the safety of the church community, you never can be really quite sure that those things are okay to do or are going to be safe because at every corner, always- Satan is lurking. <laughs> yes, Satan is lurking. Thank you. Yes, Satan is lurking in the in yeah. the and there's these like footholds you could give to the devil without you even knowing it, right? The story of the weeds, right? Like you don't make sure you're not planting seeds that are actually weeds that'll grow up and choke out everything, right? You're you- just at war with yourself and yeah. your church and the expectations and the Bible and your God. And you're trying to find what a is safe place to land yeah. that also... Yeah feels authentic and true and right for yourself because like you could find a safe place to land where people would probably accept you within your community but it would be against your authentic self yes right like that's the that's where the tension lies is for us who who have some conflicting emotions thoughts desires yeah and you're right like it would be great if everyone could just stay in their lane like the people who want to do those things there's like that's great if your interpretation of scripture your idea of women is a certain idea of like submission whatever and that works for your family and that's amazing and you feel like you thrive in it and you feel Mm -hmm. like husband's thriving in it and your kids are thriving in it good on you power to you (laughs) yeah but don't make that like a universal you know like a universal application because then the problem is is that everyone else that that their wiring doesn't work that way and I think you and I touched on that in when we had just recorded before is like why would you make why would you make your children wired in such a variety of different ways or because of the fall the default then is that their wiring goes wonky and gets wired in a bunch of different ways so that they're perpetually unhappy unless they're in this very specific molding that they'll never fit into like why would you make it that way then they just like go back to the cannibalizing yourself where your wiring feels like it's not lined up with everything around you. And then you're fighting yourself. You're fighting your own body, your own mind and your own heart and your own wiring the entire time. If you're at war with yourself and you're at war with the world and you're assuming that your mind and body and heart are all wayward and prone to doubt and sin, um, and that there are things in the world out to trip you up, sort of things like secular art, music, films, certain books you can't read, secular education, certain jobs, essentially your nervous system is just shot. And I felt like I was on guard and vigilant all the time against, like like I said, against myself, against my body's struggle with food, um, even against non-Christians, demons. And so in that mentality, you're not assuming the best of yourself and you're not assuming the best of anyone else in your life unless they're sort of in your safe Christian circle. So you're actively distrusting yourself and you're actively distrusting your thoughts and you're actively distrusting your emotions. And so you have all these red flags that kind of pop up 
that your body produces when you're in this like fight flight mode. That's like, hey, you know, this feels off like the your body's really burnt out or like, have you do you have a sleep issue or whatever? And you're just not listening because the body is secondary. It's just I'm going to keep carrying on following the theology and listening to Jesus and building my life off of, you know, the truth, the quote unquote truth. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, like for myself, I had all this body stuff that was happening and I was just like, body is not important. You know, I don't trust it. It's, you know, the flesh, right? Mm -hmm. I felt like I was looking out on this dangerous world and I was supposed to function in it. And yet I wasn't equipped with any sort of accurate information about it. So even um, going to school was such an eye opener for me and actually learning stuff about the world and about like... Mm -hmm you know, politics and sociology and and history and whatever. So I hadn't received accurate information about history, science, or like accurate social or economic information. It was almost like things of the world were secondary compared to the importance of learning the Bible. In a way, I think a lot of that, like not being well-equipped and not having accurate information about history or science or like society or economic structures or not having an accurate information, that actually made it feel more chaotic to me. The world was just, oh, the world. And it was just this big mm. kind of scary place full of like traps and snares and and Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So how would I even know, right? And then the emotions mm. that I'm feeling are possibly not correct And I'm supposed to be going through this hard, struggling, suffering time that doesn't feel great, but I'm just supposed to hunker down and just keep plugging away. And then you have on like the backdrop of it is this end times looming. And I don't know how significant it was in your church, but because our church was Pentecostal, like the end times featured fairly (laughs) strongly, as well as like you know, you were aware as a young child that the rapture was going to come. Yes. Dying is better than living in a weird, bizarre way, because when death comes, all the suffering will end and everything will make sense. So everything that seems confusing now that you don't have the tools for and everything that's difficult to navigate and all the temptation and all the sin and all that stuff, that's all going to end when Jesus comes back and we all get to heaven. And isn't it going to be wonderful? Yeah. (laughs) Won't it be great when we're all dead? And so (laughs) in the meantime, it's not even that you might not even make it like you and I joked about before. It's like, what if I don't have sex or what if I don't have a boyfriend? Oh, I know. You yeah. don't have the guarantee that you'll even get to like live out your life to death. Like you might get raptured at any point, <laughs> like yep. out of the middle of anything interesting you might be doing. Really important things that in life, like the actually really important things for humans, things like hobbies, things like education, things like diverse friendships that include non-Christian friendships, things like systems of injustice and politics and how it all intertwines, things that drive humans and connect humans and make them aware of their surroundings and feel alive. All of that was like, well, we'll just hold that fairly loosely because Jesus could come at any time and all that's kind of worldly stuff anyway. And your prime, you know, your prime goal should just be to worship God. And so that floatiness kind of kicked in and there was a chaos that I kind of felt to it all that just felt like I was just 
waiting for God to kind of give me purpose and waiting for the right steps and waiting for things to sort of make sense, not really understanding how reality functions, um, not really being able to relate to a lot of ways that people on the planet function, like how I couldn't really understand their mentality. I didn't know where they were coming from. I sort of felt disconnected. And then seeing major things in the world, and it was just like waiting for God to fix them, like, oh, he'll get me where I need to go. Or, you know, if I'm not qualified, it doesn't matter. What was the saying? Like, um, God doesn't qualify the call. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Mm-hmm. So there was this thing of just, you just kind of wait. And in a mo- in the moment, the Holy Ghost is going to teach you like what you need to say when you're up in front of Kings or you're up in front of the, whatever, you know, he'll, the Holy Spirit will tell you what you don't need to study. You don't need to learn. You don't need to, God is just going to do it all for you um, mm-hmm. and be in the back of your mind telling you which way to go um, and making sure you get to the place that you need to go. And it was just like year after year after year not hearing, not getting where I felt like I needed to go, not feeling qualified, not getting jobs, not getting the things, just doing like piecemeal, you know, filler jobs and floating about if we're talking about impacts about stuff in marriage too. Like a lot of that translated into like my floatiness and my lack of direction and my lack of development of my own emotional skills and lack of development of my own interests where the hobbies Mm. and the diverse friends and the interests in the world, that was all so underdeveloped. And that put the full weight of a lot of things like the vision, the direction, the finances, the, you know, the fulfillingness part of the marriage, the, the, the meatiness to the marriage of what couples should bring to the table. Yeah. It wasn't bringing anything to the table. And I don't mean that to diss myself. Like, obviously I'm pretty cool. Um, (laughs) Obviously. Yes. um, In terms of like, where are you going to be what's going to happen in this relationship that was all on my partner and I wasn't bringing that to the table I was like yeah but Jesus is coming back anytime soon you know and so Hmm. we would try and have serious conversations about our lives and our future well I mean I wouldn't but he would and it would be like what is your vision like for your future and for yourself and literally my response would be to be in church you know and he would be like no like for you as a person like you as a human Hmm. What drives you? What is your ambition? What is your, what makes you tick inside? And I was like, to be in church, you know, don't work. I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So because I I hadn't set any goals for myself or even had a vision of how to develop myself or what tools I needed to have, I didn't have any concrete plans. I didn't have any, it was just like, like what, what does Sarah want actually felt sinful to me because I hadn't ever bothered to give myself the time or the space. Mm-hmm. Think about those things. Because again, I was trying to go back to that thing of that more of you, God, less of me. I wanted less of Sarah. Like I wanted less mm-hmm. of myself and more of God's vision and his things and his, you know. And so I think with the anxiety thing, um, and like I had mentioned before with the sleep the sleep issues, all of that kicked off, like the deepest anxiety I felt and the deepest sort of sleep issues all kicked off when I started deconstructing and realizing how much fear I had in my belief system, that Mm. that moment that I started to let doubt in and question that I might not 
that church might not be the answer. Not even just that God might not be the answer. Like that church not going to church might be an issue. That Mm -hmm. was when I realized I was like, oh my God, I'm afraid of losing God. I'm I'm afraid of getting it wrong. I'm afraid of harming others. I'm afraid of like having no purpose and no meaning in my life because I was told that the only purpose that you have in life and the only meaning that you can get is, is if you're following God fear of like constant fear of demonic influence and activity, like fear of hell. And so like all this loss of God, this eternal separation, this fear of getting it wrong, this fear of screwing over other humans, because my witness was so bad and my Christian living was so bad um, that they would be eternally punished because I failed them in, in, in the sphere that I am placed in. I didn't do my job as a witness And so as soon as I started to like question some of that stuff, I realized I had, it's a fear driven belief system. And anyone who I like, I challenge anyone to get to that edge where you, if you're going to question things and you say, Oh, is God even needed at all? And see what emotions come up in you. If you say you don't, (laughs) if you say you don't have a fear-based system that you're, you're in, see what happens if you get to that edge and you're willing to question the importance of God in your life. (laughs) And then just tell me if you don't develop anxiety and a raging (laughs) sleep disorder, sitting at a window every night, staring out at three o'clock in the morning at your neighbors with a bottle of port in your hand. what the fuck it's all about um but so yeah so having now kind of like thrown off almost every sort of facet of that version of theology and and everything like that there's been so much healing in my life and so much like watershed moments of where it's just like whooshed out of my body all this stuff that was Mm with me for for 20 years like I said from from end of high school to like two years ago and all the things just kind of clicked into place the things that I was slowly entertaining and learning in therapy and learning and processing and starting to make sense for me it just sort of like click 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 just things gone gone of eating yeah insomnia gone um anxiety gone demonic dreams gone and like it's like oh my god like I so much of what was problematic in my life was this belief system. I was thinking about when you were talking was like how you were almost like your partner was questioning you, like, what what do you want? Like, what where do you see yourself? And it reminded me of um, more like a comic where the there's like a Sunday school teacher asking kids um, a question. And, and it's something just simple, like, what do you see on this piece of paper? And there's like a tree and a squirrel. Mm-hmm. And the kid replies like, well, I know the answer is Jesus. So I'm just going to say Jesus. <laughs> and it's like, that's exactly what you're, we all end up doing. And what you were kind of describing is, you yeah. know, he says, where do you see yourself? And you're like, well, the answer is Jesus. So I see myself yes. as Jesus. And he's like, no, but like, what what career do you see yourself in? And like, what, how do you want to apply your energy? Um, well, I see myself in church and with Jesus. <laughs> that is such a good example of how we're sort of trained to have the appropriate responses and kind of goes back to what you were saying before, where you were like, well, isn't it good to strive for things and strive to be better and forgiving and yeah like yeah. of course it is in the sense of like we know that forgiveness is good or we know that like patience is good and whatever we know all those stuff it, it's definitely good but not to the detriment of simply not processing your emotion exactly or, yeah 
feeling other emotions, like, or being yourself, <laughs> or being yourself, and like, and and yeah. also that those other things have a time and a place as well, yeah. right? Yeah, it wouldn't function that great if everyone just forgave everyone all the time because there's power dynamics. Like some people have power and are abusers, and yes, that's framed for those that are on the unfortunate end of that um, that power imbalance that they're then told to forgive, to forgive, to be joyful, to be grateful, to be happy. And it's like, no, 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 there are real issues yeah. that need to be addressed. And this imbalance needs to be corrected. And it's a reasonable response for you to feel Absolutely. these negative things. One of the things I was going to ask you to just as we were wrapping up here is, I just wonder for any of the listeners who totally are relating to what you're talking about, like anxiety, insomnia, trying to bypass your emotions and your wants and desires and stuff. And I just wonder if there is any pieces of advice that worked for you that you would pass on as like nuggets of wisdom, like for your next step, consider doing these things. That's a really good question. I think it's a hard one because I think everyone, like you and I have discussed, Krista, of how well we have similarities in our in our theological takeaways from our upbringing. Mm-hmm. We have differences as well, and we start we sort of internalized different things. Yeah, scripture is really vast, and it has all these different takes on God. So we all walk away with this kind of like slightly different version of God and slightly different things. So I think that the response is that your path out as well, or your path to questioning or your path to finding healing for yourself is going to be different. And maybe if I give an example of a, a watershed moment, when I was up most nights and I was having all nighters multiple times a week, I was really ragged. My health was not great. My hair was falling out. Like, um, and the anxiety, I was still trying to, to navigate it and manage it with prayer. So a lot of my being up at night was me, quote unquote, prayer warring, being a prayer warrior and trying to yeah. warrior through it with prayer and walking around the house and like reading scriptures and whatever. And that went on for probably a year of trying to tackle the worst of the insomnia that way. And how it actually ended up happening was that there, I don't know what it was, but there was a light bulb moment where I realized that through prayer and through that kind of approach, I was basically trying to dominate what my body was manifesting and control it. I think I told you the story before, but I paused and I just said, body, if you are feeling anxious and if you are struggling and if you need to be anxious to process whatever is happening you are allowed to be I'm not going to fight you anymore on it and I'm not going Mm -hmm. to try and tell you not to feel that and it was sort of as soon as I gave that permission to my body in that Mm -hmm. short sentence of telling my body verbally out loud I'm not going to stand in your way anymore Mm -hmm. I just had this insane rush of emotional release, like my whole Mm. just crumbled onto the couch and I was shaking and sobbing. And it was like, oh my God, I get teary now thinking about it. It was like, my body was like, thank you for finally recognizing what I've been trying to tell you for a long time. And so I think like a big thing is your body's not damaged or wrong or dirty or sinful or awful. It's 
it will try to tell you things. And if you can even start to trust yourself that wee bit, trust your doubts. Don't reject your doubts. Trust your doubts. See where they go. Don't be afraid of your mind. Think things through. Don't be afraid of your body. If your body has anxiety, find out where it's coming from. Don't try and control it. Don't try and wonder, oh, is it bad? I shouldn't be anxious. I shouldn't be fearful. I shouldn't know if you're fearful, find out why. Go to therapy, go to counseling, CBT, CBD oil, (laughs) or anxiety. Um, It works. And you've said that before, Krista, the same thing you've said, like, don't be afraid to go to those places, right? And ask the questions. Yeah. I think that building the self-awareness is so key. And it doesn't mean that you have to do anything drastic. You know, I think that that's some of the fear component. Mm -hmm. It's like, sometimes you just have to sit there and say, like, I feel angry. You have to build that muscle almost of self-awareness and and foster that a bit before you can even Mm -hmm. allow yourself to have some permission to explore some of those ideas and and your authentic self and everything. I relate to your story so much. I know a lot of other people do, but the idea that like, we just don't exercise that muscle and instead it's like, okay, well, I'm going to exercise the muscle of submission and self-editing. Yeah. Well, and I think because our happiness is really never on the table in that theological framework. And so your happiness is never an actual point in the journey that you're meant to be looking at or factoring in when you're making decisions. The equation doesn't have happiness at the end or your, even your bodily health, because sometimes people suffer. Sometimes people well yeah in that equation it's always the end result is always righteousness when you start having to actually throw out that equation again that's where the anxiety and the fear will really reveal itself but when you start allowing for happiness and healthiness to be an end part of that equation there's all sorts of different things you're going to have to start plugging in questions you're going to have to start asking and permissions you're going to start to have to give yourself in order to arrive at those things you're trained not to go to those places. Like your entire nervous system is trained to be in fight flight mode against things that you've been told are demonic and evil and whatever. And so you actually have to get over that hurdle, trusting that you're not your own worst enemy. That's good. I like that you're not your own worst enemy. And if you have been practicing at being your own worst enemy and sabotaging yourself left, right, and center, there's a new habit you can start. (laughs) (laughs) Next week is your turn. So yay. (laughs) I'm just joking. I'm excited to share. I love you and leave you. We will see you next week. Bye.